0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Jonah. If you've had your marker in that Bible at Hosea, you can go then to Joel. If at Joel, then you can go to Amos. And if at Amos, you can go to Obadiah. And right after Obadiah, you can find the book of Jonah. There are many great stories and much great literature to be found in the Old Testament. There is the absolute wonder of Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation. There is the grace that we find in the story of Joseph and his travails in Egypt. There's the great tragedy of the book of Judges, the beauty and love that we find in the little book of Ruth, the literary genius of the book of Esther, the amazing and beautiful prophecies of Isaiah. Yet none of these quite holds the imagination, especially of children, like other stories that feature wonderful, amazing, and probably more miraculous events. If I were to guess, the three best-known stories by children and probably by adults from the Old Testament would be Moses parting the Red Sea, the flood in Noah's time, and this, the story of Jonah. Children love these stories because they're amazing. Amazement helps to hold their imagination. But Jonah offers us much more than just an unexpected Uber ride from a whale and just a fishy vacation. Jonah tells us about our own hearts and about how God will gently lead us to the truth. It tells us about a good prophet's own prejudice, hatred, and sin, and how God is indeed good to all. We've talked as we go through the minor prophets, how they all kind of hit the same themes, even if they're focusing and, and really working on doing that in different ways. Hosea focused on this metaphor of adultery, Joel tried to provide us with a liturgy for handling difficult times. Amos focused so heavily on injustice done to those who are vulnerable. Obadiah on clarity and brotherly love. But Jonah is completely different from all of the other prophets in almost every single way. There's very little in way of prophecy here. It's much more narrative than any of the other minor prophets. It's less about Israel and the nations and more about the prophet and about God. And in that, we might want to say that it is even more about us and Jesus. Many would look at this amazing story and note that it is indeed amazing, so amazing in fact that they would argue that it can't possibly be true. But we'll deal with that in time, but here's the real rub. Jonah is not just a real story, even if an amazing one but one that paints a very realistic picture for us, a picture that we will do well to study and learn from this morning. As we read, we'll break our book up into four different points. Four points will go along with each chapter. We'll read it a chapter at a time. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is that Jonah, the book of Jonah, paints a realistic picture of sinners. A realistic picture of sinners. Read with me in Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So the captain came and said to him, "'What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish.' And they said to one another, "'Come, let us cast lots, so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us.' And so they cast lots. And a lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, "'Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation?' So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We begin the book of Jonah. The book itself starts with a pretty clear prophetic calling. God is present. He calls the prophet and he sends him out on a task. And if you are first time reading this book, you might be mistaken for thinking that you've heard this story before. That this is kind of a repetition of other callings of prophets. But we find out immediately that something is wrong. As a matter of fact, the first three verses of Jonah hammer this point home. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord, he fled to Tarshish. Again, he says Tarshish several times. And it's a hard word to pronounce and I wish he wouldn't have done it. He always sounds silly saying the, the name Tarshish. There's just no way to say that dignified. However, that's where Jonah fled to. He was going away from the presence of the Lord, not doing what the Lord had commanded, but fleeing from him. We have good reason to think that Jonah probably knows in his heart any sort of fleeing from the presence of the Lord is impossible. Nevertheless, sin's not rational, and so he tries. God doesn't seem like he's going to have any of it, and he calls a great storm to come upon the ship. And again, I think We need to make sure that we catch the drift of the problem here. We're not dealing with a bunch of landlubbers who can't stomach turbulence here and there. These are seasoned sailors. And they are filled with unrest because of the nature of the storm. You can tell how serious it is when they start shoving their cargo overboard to maybe lighten the boat a little. And all the while, what we find is that Jonah is sleeping. It's an amazing thing to think of that this storm is so bad that these mariners are freaking out. But Jonah, who is from Israel, who doesn't have a navy, its not a great naval-faring nation, is sleeping in the hold, peacefully at rest. It reminds me of Jesus, frankly, in Mark 4, 35-41. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples come to Jesus who is sleeping, and they they utter, Do you not care that we are perishing? Why are you sleeping? The captain says basically the same thing to Jonah. What do you mean, you sleeper? Why are you sleeping? Why aren't you calling out to your God? Don't you care that we are perishing? Do something, please. How come both can sleep like this in this middle of a storm? I think it's probably for the same reason, although it's applied in somewhat different ways. They both understand and have a very robust understanding of theology. They know ultimately that God is in control of all things. Therefore, what will happen will happen. And no amount of their pleading, no amount of their worrying is going to change anything. Jesus had a right to feel peace with God. I think Jonah's was more of simple resignation. You kind of get that all the way through. There's nothing I can do. If God's coming for me, he's coming for me. Even though the captain confronts him directly to his face, Jonah hides yet again, yet God again will not let him off. The lot may fall into the lap, but the decision is from the Lord, and the lot clearly falls on Jonah. They all look to him. And Jonah's answer is fantastic, theologically precise and perfect in every way. Who do you serve? I serve the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I wonder if when he answers he doesn't mumble in disgrace, not at God but at himself. Because his answer seems so full of God that I'm sure that those sailors looked at him and are saying, "Wait, you hit the trifecta, dude. Heaven, earth, and sea, there's nothing else. Maybe you should have spoken up before. Why didn't you say anything?" There's nothing left. If he is the God of heaven and he made the dry land and he made the sea, then maybe you're the cause of our problems. Jonah. Yeah. Probably. The answer was to heave Jonah overboard. But the men, unlike Jonah, do not want anyone else to come to pain and to come under the wrath of God. Do not. Rather, they try to row to shore, but there's just no doing it. Eventually, they have to throw him overboard, praying that God would show them mercy repeatedly throughout the book of Jonah in two distinct instances. Every time Jonah, who has wonderful theology, wonderful knowledge of God, comes up against unbelievers, we find that he acts horribly and they act wonderfully. That is not a surprise. What shall we make of this? Simply put, Scripture does not pull punches on its people. None of them come out clean. Jonah's not the only one to get painted like this. We would think that Scripture would paint its people as wartless heroes, of men and women who are above everything, who are faithful to the end. They're full of virtue and courage, of hope and valor. This is what we often do with our heroes. We often make our heroes peerless in every way so that we paper over any, any issues that they might have. The 500-year anniversary of the Reformation wasn't too terribly long ago, something that we would celebrate even today, October 31st, a day that Luther pinned 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. It's as good a spot as any to say that the Reformation was starting, I suppose. I remember Bree was watching with the kids videos on, on Luther, lectures on, on Luther, very well done lectures. And when it came to his later in life rabid anti Semitism, they basically papered over it. Right? It's just that he was a man of his time. He was really angry at the Jews because he didn't repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no reason to paper over that. I can guarantee you, if Luther was found in Scripture, Scripture wouldn't paint over it. Scripture pulls no punches when it comes to its own people. It doesn't paint them like that. Rather, it paints them perfectly and really as they are. Jonah was indeed a known prophet. We find, unlike many of the other minor prophets, we find him mentioned other places in Scripture, including 2 Kings 14.25. So he is a known prophet in Israel. He has spoken the word of the Lord, and it has come true. The Bible continually, though, refuses to hold up even the prophets of God as without error and sinless. Instead, it gives its main characters all the way through flaws. Sometimes those flaws are funny. Sometimes they are fleeting. Sometimes they are learned from. Sometimes they are incredibly serious, but they are all They are all sinful, save one fairly major exception. Jonah is no different. We get a realistic picture of what sinners are, even when they are on the right side of the fight. We are, every single one of us, sinners. And let's be very clear about what Jonah is doing here. As we will read in chapter 4, Jonah has a very good reason to flee. His good reason to flee is because he knows God well. He flees because he knows if he goes to Nineveh and preaches to them, that if they show any signs of repentance, that God is incredibly gracious and merciful, and he will not bring judgment upon them. So the surest way to assure that they have judgment is to make sure that they don't know that judgment's coming for them. He knew the mercy of God and he runs not just because he hates the Ninevites not because he hates the Assyrians he runs because he hates the fact that God loves them. These people who have been a continual thorn in the side of Israel who have butchered his own people who are ruthless and merciless merciless to his own brothers and sisters God has mercy on them and he hates him for it. So Jonah runs it's a good reminder that we need to be careful and how we relate the doctrines that we are taught by men to the men themselves jonah knows what is good and right doctrine he knows how to quell the sea he knows that god has made all things he knows the character and the nature of god but that doesn't mean that he'll act according to that knowledge without sin And friends, you can learn a great deal in this life and you can learn a great deal from Scripture. You can be wonderfully broad and rich and deep in the knowledge of God and still be an abject and woeful sinner. This doesn't mean you stop working to grow in God and that knowledge of God means nothing, but it's simply to remind us that knowing things about God does not equal truly knowing God. we cannot tie our doctrine to the men who preach it we either do one of two bad things either we make those men to be so pure as the doctrines that they preach or we view the doctrines as wretched as they will be neither is going to be true unlike the vast majority of people in the past, we can learn much from men who you will never know the character of. In the New Testament, when they're warned against false teachers, they're warned against people who will come and be in their presence. When a guy was going to give lecture after lecture and sermon after sermon before them, he would have to live among them. They would watch how he walked and how he talked and the way he handled things on the side. They would know his character. You know nothing about the vast majority of your teachers besides what they put forward. The Bible refuses to separate out good teachers from character, but you cannot check the character of most of these people. And so my warning is not to dissociate from their teaching. Take their teaching for what it is worth, but do not lionize the men who give you that teaching. Realize that on a number of different issues they will be wrong, and on many ways you might never know, they are incredibly sinful. This is all the more reason why the pastors of this church matter. Because there is no other place where you'll be able to know the people who are teaching you better than here. There is no other place. And the Bible refuses to separate out teaching from the character of the man who does the teaching. And you are to know both of them. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn from other people. I couldn't possibly tell you to do that. I cannot possibly teach and preach, and Richard and Josh cannot possibly lead and guide, as well as other people out there. You need to learn from them because we learn from them. But it does mean that you are to know who we are. You are to follow our character and imitate us. Jonah, without a doubt, had great theology, but he was a literal shipwreck. Jonah paints a realistic picture of sinners. But secondly, Jonah paints a realistic picture of salvation. If you would read with me, we'll begin a little bit behind chapter 2 or in front of chapter 2 and verse 17 of chapter 1, but then we will read through chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me. To take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We have here a very realistic picture of salvation. Jonah is splashing around in the sea until the Lord sends a fish to eat him. And now we have certainly entered the realm of the imaginary. Some have argued that this is clearly the case. One of the reasons why they reject the truthfulness of the book of Jonah is because fish can't swallow people. For those who want to attack the truth of the Bible, this is a really nice place to sit down and camp out. But such discussions are, in the words of the prophets, dumb. We know people can be eaten whole by fish. A man just this year named Michael Packard, who was a lobsterman from Maine, was scuba diving down 45 feet in the waters off the coast of Maine when a whale came by and accidentally, to his great displeasure, and Michael's scooped him up. And for about 30 seconds, he was in the mouth of this creature until it spat him out, not on the dry land, but just to float around in a little bit of vomit. It happens. It's not unheard of. It's not the only time we've heard of other people saying that this has happened to them. So Jonah was indeed swallowed by a whale or a fish. I doubt that the Hebrews would have differentiated them. And he was taken down to the belly of the earth, to the belly of Sheol. What he means is in his view of the world, that fish took him no less than to the place of the dead. While he was living, he was as good as dead. And he was under no misimpression about who did this to him. In verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. God did this. But why would God do this to Jonah? Was it just to show Jonah that he was serious? I think that Jonah probably already got that message. Rather, it was to show Jonah that he too needed to be saved. And how great and how deep his sin truly was. What God does here is save Jonah from death and from his sin. What a beautiful picture this is for us. Jonah's sin has literally led him directly into the mouth of death. And God saves him from that. He was trapped and there was no way for him to be free. Verses 5 and 6. The waters closed upon me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet God's kindness released him. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. God spoke to Jonah and he said, Jonah, you're going to rise up, you're going to go to Nineveh, and you're going to preach because they're evil. God knows that they've done evil. Their evil has come up upon me. And Jonah says, hard pass. So what does God do? God says, if you think, Jonah, That you do not deserve the judgment that I would bring upon them. You are severely mistaken. And so God does what God should do. He gives him a taste of that very judgment. The very judgment that he wishes upon others. God shows him that he himself deserves it. Now in this particular instance, the salvation isn't going to change everything. Jonah might be squared away with God at the end of this, but he is not and his heart squared away with the Ninevites. But he certainly does change toward God. God's commands are not things to be spurned; They're not suggestions. And God is not asking. He is commanding, go, Jonah, do it. Our salvation is a salvation from sin and death to do the commands of the Lord. But it also helps us with a wrong picture of salvation. Sometimes we think that when people get saved, these great metaphors of the Bible are the only things that are ever true. They come up out of the water of baptism and they are clean. They see the light. Their lives are rightly ordered. They're rightly reconnected with God and reconciled to brothers and sisters. Everything is going to be good and wonderful and glamorous from here on out. But while much of that is true, much of the hymns that we sing that point in that direction are indeed true, if we're honest with ourselves... We would know that our salvation leaves us covered at times from head to toe with fish vomit and a lot of work in front of us. It's not always clean and pretty. Sometimes our salvation is messy. And the older we get, the more we realize that any notion that God's saving us was going to allow us a clear path forward in life is wrong. The Waters get muddy very quickly our sin still clings tightly to us. We still have to make decisions about the people who are around us, about who we attach ourselves to and who we won't attach ourselves to, how we deal with family, how we deal with friends, how we deal with a job, how we deal with employment, how we deal with old habits that we used to have. We used to have in Louisville two fantastic neighbors. I've told you about them before. Wonderful people. Uh, they were nurses. And so what would happen is we would have medical comments for them. And I'm sure that if you were a nurse or a doctor, you get this all the time. And I am sure that is overwhelmingly annoying, but we would, we would get free medical advice from them all the time. And, and I remember one time we had a, a little girl staying with us. We were kind of foster, fostering her. And she had this horrible, uh, asthma attack. And we were trying to give her the breathalyzer and it wasn't working and she was just having a so hard of a time. And we were kind of freaking out. Didn't know if, it was late at night, didn't know if we should call 911 or what we should do. So instead we called our neighbors. They didn't try and blow it off. They didn't say, hey, did you try this? Did you try this? They're like, no, we'll come over immediately. No hesitation. Wonderful people. Lesbians. Didn't know the Lord. Two. Beautiful girls. We particularly love them, would love to have seen them come to the Lord. But we also realized if they came to the Lord, even one of them, just one of them, especially. What a mess that would cause in their life. Two girls that they loved. Two girls that would now not understand why mama wasn't with mama anymore. A community that they built up around themselves for 15, 20 years. In complete shambles because of what the Lord has done for them. Good. Oh, it will be Good but covered with filth. Covered. Frankly, more of our lives probably look like that than we like to think. And we probably get off cleaner, a lot of us do, simply because we think that we're cleaner. They wouldn't have that luxury. They, like Jonah, would be covered with the filth of their former life. Friends, you need to know that even if your life becomes clean when you are saved, that's not going to be the life of everybody. And those people need help and aid and comfort from the people of God. Jonah provides us this realistic picture of salvation, not only from sin and from death, but also simply from the messiness of our life. Thirdly, as we go to the third chapter, it also provides us a realistic picture of sackcloth. A realistic picture of sackcloth. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. It's interesting in this chapter to note what Jonah actually preaches. There is no warning, there is just fact. You got 40 days and judgment will come down upon you. There is no, if you do this, you might escape. There is no call to repentance. There is just pure doom. So what do they do? First, it says they believed. They believed. And then they acted appropriately on that belief. They did what belief calls them to do. They repented. This is the same for all of us. This is exactly what Peter says when he is preaching the gospel for the first time in Jerusalem. After the ascension of the Lord, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and he says, You guys have killed the king. You guys have murdered the Messiah. And they say, Well, what should we do? And he says, You should repent and believe. The same thing that we are called on to do. And notice the way in which Jonah, this book, beautifully puts it. From the greatest to the least, all of Nineveh does precisely this. While everyone is kind of pinned out for this, the king himself gets special notice. He takes off his royal robes. He dons sackcloth like the rest. He sits in ashes, not on a throne. You know, this is removing himself basically from kingship. It's not like people would have been able to identify him from the pictures, right? They they wouldn't have been able to know him. How would he have been known? He would have been known as a king because he was the one wearing the big purple robe. And he was the dude sitting on the throne. The very thing that makes him the king, the very thing that sets him off as better than the rest, he has to take off. He realizes in the face of this judgment That he is no better than the least of them. That that judgment will come upon him just as it comes upon the least. So the great will also and likewise suffer. Friends, you cannot remain prideful before men and humble before God. This king could not possibly stay kingly in his royal robes if he was going to be humble before God. So he does what all of us should do realize that we are no different from one another. As judgment falls on one, judgment will fall on another. This is exactly what Jonah had to be shown death to learn. The king just apparently knows it. He is not different. He is not set aside. He too will die. And so he signals this by putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Most of us, I think, would probably reject such things as simply outward signs. They're hollow, symbolic things that mean nothing because usually there's nothing behind them. We don't like to do the things that hypocrites do. We don't like to talk like the hypocrites do. And so we don't really like these outward signs of humility. We don't think that it's appropriate necessarily to put on sackcloth or to pray on our knees or even with our faces to the ground. Isn't this just virtue signaling? It's just telling people that you have some virtue. We should avoid virtue signaling. We should avoid and always remove ourselves from anything that is merely the profession of virtue without the possession of virtue. But that's not what this is. And that's not what every single bit of signaling is. The king, in order to truly show humility, He must be humble in sign and in truth. He cannot possibly just be humble on the inside while decorating himself with all of the entrapments of nobility on the outside. Sometimes signaling has to be there. Sometimes we have to make outward signs and outward symbols to show the true inner reality. If that means getting on your knees and praying before God, even if it's in your own prayer closet, not before the world, then you ought to do it. Signs of humility are good and right and true. Can we possibly have the virtue of caring for the poor and the vulnerable in this world without speaking out about it, without making our virtue, our love and desire for the good to come to others known? Repentance must in some form be displayed to the world. And if we are true, this is the beauty of the picture that this sackcloth gives to us. It is that he is wearing his humility very clearly outwardly. He's not just saying he is humble. He is humiliating himself in sackcloth and in ashes with the rest of his people. Let us act as thoroughly as this king does. And if you really want to know the truth, this is... Is the real miracle in Jonah? The real miracle is not the swallowing of Jonah by a fish, but the swallowing of pride by an entire city. Jonah 3 paints a realistic picture of sackcloth. And finally, Jonah 4 paints a realistic picture of sanctification. Read with me, if you would, please. But it displeased Jonah For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? If we guessed right, Jonah was made somewhat right with God back in Jonah 2. He was taken down to death, but his prayer was heard, his faith was rewarded with his salvation, and he got spit up on dry land. So he does precisely what God wants him to. He knows that he must not live obediently, but as all of us know, simply because we must live obediently doesn't mean we have to like it. And Jonah simply doesn't like it. Notice what Jonah does here. Don't miss it. He has this desperate hope. We are told at the end of Jonah 3 that God is going to relent from his disaster. Now Jonah may or may not know that, but Jonah clearly thinks it. He is watching them repent. He's watching it carried out in real time and he blurts out to God, I knew this was going to happen. I knew they were going to repent and I knew that you would forgive them. So he seems clued in on everything. Yet what does he do? He walks out of the city so that when the brimstone might fall, it won't fall on him, and he makes a booth simply so that if possibly the wrath of God does come, he'll have a front row seat, right? Like, he doesn't think it's going to happen, but fingers crossed, man, it could still occur, right? Like, he is hoping desperately that these people perish at the hand of God, even though he really does realize God ain't going to do it. In our Christian walk, we have sort of a two levels of obedience before God. I don't really know how to label these things, but one is, I think, just a straightforward willed obedience. It's when you do what you ought to do, not necessarily because you long to do it, but simply because you know that God wants you to do that thing. It's good. I'm going to tell you, unashamedly, doing what God commands, even if you don't want to do it, is an exceedingly good thing for you. And you ought to be applauded. If you are like Jonah, we ought to to take time out to say, Jonah did well in Jonah chapter 3. It's good for you to control your mouth even when you long to tell that person what you really think. It is good to control yourself even when you truly do want to indulge. It is good to be generous as the Lord commands you even if it pains you. We can look down on such obedience as simply the doing of a duty and in that way minimalize it. But we have to have it pressed into us. This is a good thing. Jonah does well here. He goes to Nineveh, although he doesn't want to. He preached what God says, even though his heart wasn't in it. He did his duty. It might have been lackluster. It might have lacked some shine. His preaching was probably not filled with a whole bunch of wonderful illustrations. Yet he did it. It wouldn't have been better for him to simply buy another ticket to Tarshish. What he did was good. I was reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 8 and following when he gives an example of two sons. Jesus goes to one son and he says, hey, go work in the vineyard. And the son says, sure, dad. And he goes to another son and he says, son, go work in the vineyard. And the guy says, nah. The first son, who said yes, doesn't do it. The second son, who said no, does it. Jesus looks at him and says, who did the will of the Father? Not the one who said it, the one who did it. The one who did it might not have wanted to do it. His original no might have been the cry of his heart, but he knew better than to listen to his heart. He listened to his Father. Acting obediently before God, even if it's just willed obedience, not longing to do it, but just doing it because you know you should is a very good thing. But God does not want to leave us there. This sort of obedience is indeed better than disobedience, but it's not a full obedience. It's not everything that God wants for you. A full obedience not only sees God's commands as our duty, but as our joy. It sees them as good and right and true and helpful. This is the question that God presses down upon Jonah. Do you do well? Simply asking, Jonah, is this good for you? What are you, what are you getting out of this? Is it, is it helpful for you to be so angry? I can't tell you how important of a question that is. How many times have you actually stopped and asked if your behaviors are truly doing any good for you? And truly helping you? Is your rant online really, truly helping you? Is your anger truly good for you? Is your greed working for you? Does envy get you what you want? Is your selfishness really filling you with the joy that you seek? Are your TV, internet, and other habits truly allowing you to do well? Once saved, we might realize that our sin is bad but sanctification is realizing that our holiness is good. And there is a vast difference between those two things. To teach Jonah this, God gives him a plant. It helped him with the burning heat of the day. And it made Jonah, ironically, in verse 6, feel exceedingly glad. It seems like Jonah's a really hard dude to please. But one little plant and he's like, oh, but still my heart. I wonder if he named it Oscar or something like that. He seems to really be enamored with this little plant. God gives it to him, knowing full well the next day he's going to send a worm and dry it up. God does to Jonah in chapter 4 something very akin to what he does in chapter 2. He allows him to experience what Jonah wanted others to experience. He does this in order to make him compassionate. He wants to show him the good that God is doing for others. So God brings a lesson home. Are you really upset for the plant for which you did nothing? It arose in a day, it died in a day, and you didn't do a thing to bring it about. And you are, you are overly upset about this. You want to die because of it. Should I not be upset about Nineveh? Should I not be upset about the destruction of Nineveh, over which I labored, which is a great city, with 120,000 people in it, made in my image. And he puts at the end cattle, which throws some people off. Like, why, why mention the cattle there? Because cattle, even if no one else lived there, even if all of the people disappeared overnight, whether in judgment or in grace whether in rapture or in hell, it doesn't matter. If they disappeared and there's still cattle there, God is saying, even if there's still cattle there, those cattle are more important than your stupid plant. Do you do well to be upset over the plant and should I not be upset over that city, over the destruction that would come to it? The point is, even more than that, shouldn't Jonah be upset about it? God is looking at Jonah and telling him through a difficult experience. And yet, even as he has purposely poked Jonah in the face, he's trying to be kind, getting him to understand what Jesus would say so many centuries later. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Friends, know this. God will give you great difficulty in this life. At times, he will press that upon you harshly. And for some of us, it will make us despair even of life. But this is ultimately to serve his own ends for your good. It is to make you rightly consider the suffering of others. It is to make you more compassionate, to show you your own selfish behavior, and to build up your love for others. Both brothers and sisters in the Lord, and your enemies, who even while they are your enemies and perhaps even the enemies of God are still made in his image, whom he has labored over, and who, whether we like it or not, are more important to God than our possessions, than our comforts, and than any position that we might hold in the world. God is building up in Jonah both the will to do what is right and the desire to make it so. That is what our sanctification is. It's for our good, I think, that we don't get to see how the story finishes playing out. That presses the conclusion of it, not upon Jonah, but upon us. Do we rightly learn from the experience of Jonah? Do we rightly see the lessons that are be gleaned from this? Either way, we know that Jesus does it actually experience what Jonah experiences. Only he does so perfectly. Matthew 12, Jesus talks to Pharisees and scribes. They come to him and they say, Teacher, you know, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answers them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they reprinted at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so Jesus himself will be on the belly of the earth. And in three days will rise again. And rise again to go and preach good news, not news of judgment, but good news to nations who are far off, who were not considered his people, who were not his kin, who were not his countrymen. And what Jonah does reluctantly, Jesus does with joy set before him. He takes on all of this out of love for you and me. Friends, do you do well to neglect such a great salvation? Are you going to reject such a kind offer of the forgiveness of sins? The Ninevites, with half hearted preaching from a preacher with an incredibly cold disposition, repented. Let you all know something greater than Jonah is here. What will the Ninevites say about our generation? Let us pray. Father, give us any difficulty, any pain, any suffering that might make us more like Christ. For any of these must be for our good if it serves that end. Make us compassionate, loving, and kind. Make the word of the gospel quick on our lips, especially before our enemies. Make us merciful, dutiful, and joyful. We thank you for our wonderful, merciful Savior this morning as we remember his death and resurrection proclaimed to us. May our repentance be real and true, your mercy sure and great. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen.